0: A second reading is from Psalm 46. These are God's words: For the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah, set to Amalot, or Amaloths, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth do change, and though the mountains be shaken into the heart of the seas, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains tremble with the swelling thereof, there is a river, the streams whereof make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her at the turning of the morning. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of Yahweh. What desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariots in fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. These are God's words. Father, thank you for the word that you have spoken to us. Please send your spirit to help me rightly divide it and to distribute it to each of us as he has need. Plant it in our hearts and make it grow and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to start with a bit of a non sequitur. Contrary to popular saying, I'm spiritual but not religious is a popular saying. Scripture teaches us that man and even secular man, all kinds of men, man is inherently religious. It sounds confusing on the face of it, at least to many people it does. How can everyone be really very religious When many people today are atheists or agnostics and many others have just a fuzzy kind of spirituality with no real beliefs and certainly no clear doctrines and no rituals, how can these people be considered religious when they do not have anything that they can firmly stand for and no religious practices? The answer is simple. Religion does not find its existence in doctrine or ritual. Doctrine and ritual are expressions of religion, not definitions of it. Religion does not consist in merely doctrine or practice, but in man himself. Religion begins in the heart where God has placed eternity. And regardless of whether or not it overflows into any kind of orthodoxy or orthopraxy, that is, doctrine or practice, man remains in every way religious because God has made him for a religious purpose. What is that purpose? It is to serve him. This means that there is a clear and crucial distinction between being irreligious and being unreligious, you can be irreligious, meaning that you do not have any, you put no stock in religion. You, you scoff at religion, perhaps. You certainly don't think of yourself as religious. That's irreligious. But you cannot be unreligious. You cannot be without religion. Religion has to do with worship, and we have come to associate worship with certain kinds of beliefs and rituals, You probably, especially after our sermon series that we've done so far on how we should worship. And the nature of the church, you probably think of worship very specifically in terms of our Lord's Day service. Now, irreligious people, people who have no stock in religion, they do nothing like that. So, surely you'd think they do not worship. But the Bible does not have only a narrow view of worship, it also has a broad view. This broad view defines worship not primarily in terms of rituals, but primarily in terms of service. Because service is, as I said, what man is created for, to do that which God requires of him. Man's service extends far beyond performing rituals in certain times and places. It goes to every corner of the world. Last week we saw that The actual word we translate as worship in Scripture, both in the Old and the New Testament, means literally to prostrate or to bow down low. Today, I want to start by looking at the way in which Scripture places this word into parallel with service. Look, for instance, at Deuteronomy, which repeatedly draws a parallel between serving and worshipping or prostrating. Deuteronomy 8:19 It shall be if thou shalt forget Yahweh thy God and walk after other gods and serve them and prostrate unto them I testify against you this day that ye shall surely perish Deuteronomy 11:16 Take heed to yourselves lest your heart be deceived and ye turn aside and serve other gods and prostrate unto them Deuteronomy 17:2-5 if there be found in the midst of thee Within any of thy gates which Yahweh thy God giveth thee, man or woman, that doeth that which is evil in the sight of Yahweh thy God, in transgressing his covenant, and hath gone and served other gods, and prostrated unto them. And then he goes on to give the penalty. Then thou shalt bring forth that man or that woman who hath done this evil unto thy gates, even the man or the woman, and thou shalt stone them to death with stones. Deuteronomy 29 25 to 27 then men shall say because they forsook the covenant of Yahweh the god of their fathers which he made with them when he brought them forth from the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and prostrated unto them gods that they knew not and that he had not given unto them therefore the anger of Yahweh was kindled against this land to bring it bring upon it all the curse that is written in this book and finally Deuteronomy Chapter 30, verses 17 to 18, If thy heart turn away, and thou wilt not hear, but shalt be drawn away, and prostrate unto other gods, and serve them, I denounce unto you uh, this day that ye shall surely perish. So service and prostration are very clearly linked in God's law. And scripture also clarifies what this service to God looks like, or what service to any God looks like, by drawing a similar parallel between worship or prostrating and serving and obeying God's statutes. Service is paralleled with obeying statutes. For instance, speaking to Jeroboam, scripture says in 1 Kings, Thus saith Yahweh, the God of Israel, Behold, I will rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and will give ten tribes to thee. But he shall have one tribe for my servant David's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because that they have forsaken me, and have prostrated unto Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon, and they have not walked in my ways... To do that which is right in mine eyes, and to keep my statutes and ordinances, as did David his father. We see the same thing in Second Chronicles chapter seven. If ye turn away, forsake my statutes and my commandments which I have set before you, and you shall go and serve other gods and prostrate unto them, then I will pluck them up by the roots out of my land which I have given them. So Scripture explains the service. That is spoken of in parallel with prostration in terms of walking in God's ways or in many cases in terms of walking in the ways of another God, keeping his statutes, obeying his commandments. It is through our service that we are supposed to glorify God and enjoy him forever and we can hardly do that if we do not walk in his ways. Romans 12, 1-2 says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Now, some Bibles will say spiritual worship or reasonable worship. All of these are valid translations. The term is actually latria, which is where we get the word liturgy from. It says your reasonable or spiritual liturgy. He goes on, be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what it is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is not just referring to gathered worship. Although I will get to that in a minute, because you might be wondering what on earth is going on. We've just spent weeks looking at the importance of worship, and it has been nothing but gathered worship, the Lord's service. And now suddenly, all of a sudden, uh, all of life is worship. This will make sense in a minute, trust me, don't worry. But first, look at James 1, chapter chapter 1, verse 27, which describes, not exhaustively, but by way of summary or example, what our spiritual service, our reasonable liturgy, as it were, looks like. Pure religion and undefiled before our God and Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, this is not something that we do in gathered worship, is it? Yet it is religious. Religious service is built into us. We can't not do it because we are images. We are symbols, physical expressions of God. We are like little compasses designed to point to God and to his creative work. And if we reject God, we don't stop doing what we were made to do. We don't stop being compasses. And so we don't stop pointing. We simply point in the wrong direction. You cannot make a compass stop pointing. You can only make it stop pointing north. It can tell you the wrong direction, but it cannot tell you no direction. Even in our fallen state, we are unwittingly groping for God, as Paul says in Acts 17, like blind men in the dark. We may not know what direction to point, and we may refuse to point north, but when we do that we don't stop glorifying and serving and enjoying something we simply exchange the glory of the invisible god for the glory of created things such as they are we will always be serving and representing and magnifying something this is all worship in the broad sense of that term Now, if you're wondering where i'm going with this what this has to do with Psalm 46 and how it connects with what we have seen about worship already in the past weeks, I want to help you understand the connection between gathered worship, which we have been spending so much time studying, and everyday service to God. You need to understand that everyday service is something we do to God in order to see the connection to gathered worship. What we have been dealing with so far in our sermon series is worship as it is narrowly understood in scripture, worship as people typically mean that term, the narrow, strict definition, Sabbath worship, where we are called into God's throne room to present ourselves before him and learn from him and eat with him, that's worship as we typically think of it. We know a lot about that worship now, and we will learn more about it still But today, I want us to think about the relationship between that narrow kind of worship that happens only on a Sunday and the rest of our lives. To put it in the simplest terms, the Bible does not just treat worship as something done in the throne room. It is not just something done on your face before God, before God's face, you might say. It is also something done on your feet before God's footstool. That is, worship is done out in the world. This is why Paul instructs the Ephesians, Slaves, this is Ephesians 6, Be obedient unto them that according to the flesh are your masters, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ, not in the way of eye service, as men pleases, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service, as unto the Lord, and not unto men. And he is even more explicit in Colossians chapter 3. He says, Whatsoever ye do, work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that from the Lord ye shall receive the recompense of the inheritance. Ye serve the Lord Christ. This is in your daily labor, you serve the Lord Christ. In our work, six days of labor, we serve the Lord Christ. This is why Paul also tells the Colossians that covetousness is idolatry. Just a little bit earlier in that chapter, he says covetousness is idolatry. And Doug Wilson comments rightly on this passage. He says, quote, it is a rare occurrence when such an idolater lights votive candles in front of his bank book or leaves baskets of fruit in front of his investment portfolio. But service is still rendered. And that service is still idolatry. The idolater's life is lived in the service of that God and he does what that God demands of him. Quote. For Christians, our weekly service looks like visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, working faithfully for our employers as unto Christ, raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and everything else which God commands of us in order to rightly represent him and his interests into the world. But for non-Christians, it looks like whatever their gods demand of them instead. Look at how Jesus draws the contrast in the Gospel of Matthew. This is Matthew 25. But when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the angels with him, then shall he sit on the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all the nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as the shepherd separateth the sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand. Sheep's tails go down, but the goats on the left, their tails go up. That's how you know. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from the foundation of the world. Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. And then shall the righteous answer him, and say, Lord, when saw we thee hungry, and fed thee, or thirst, and gave thee drink? And when saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? And when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it unto the least of these my brothers, ye did it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me ye cursed into the eternal fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and ye did not give me to eat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in, naked, and ye clothed me not, sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. And then shall they also answer, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungry, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not unto one of these, ye did it not unto me. And these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's Matthew 25, 31 to 46. This should make perfect sense, given what we have seen about how the church is Christ's body. But the point that I want you to see right now is that although it's easy to think that people who don't engage in religious ritual are not worshipping, are not serving Christ or God or another God, This is not how religion and worship works, according to Scripture. Again, the way that Paul tells us that greed is idolatry makes this perfectly plain. There is is no non-religious activity, not even with money. Greed is idolatry, and idolatry is worship. Do you know any people who never engage in overtly religious rituals and yet spend eight hours a day in a cubicle just to make money for the weekend, coveting some new purchase, or some new experience? What are they serving? What are they glorifying? What are they enjoying? If you answer these questions, you will also discover what and how they are worshipping. So this is worship in the broad sense. But what is the connection between this broad worship and worship in the narrow sense which we have been looking at for all these weeks. How do they relate? Well, we've seen the parallel between worship and service, but consider another parallel that Scripture draws. Exodus thirty-two eight: speaks of the people sacrificing and worshiping or prostrating. God says to Moses, They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them, and they have made them a molten calf and have prostrated unto it, and have sacrificed unto it, and said, These are thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. So previously, we saw in Deuteronomy, it was prostrating and service that were put in parallel, put together. Here we have an example which makes more intuitive sense to us, especially in light of everything that we've learned about worship so far, which is prostrating and sacrificing put in parallel. If prostrating and service are paralleled, worship and weekday, worship, weekday work, and prostrating and sacrifice are also paralleled, worship and church, then clearly these things are connected somehow. You've got a connection between worship and work and worship and church, as it were, which means that there has to be a connection between work and church. Now, I don't think it's actually that hard to understand this. Lord's Day worship, our gathered Sabbath liturgy, is the capstone, the summit, of our larger spiritual service to God. Now, once again, notice the language that I reach for here. I'm not trying to be cute. This is natural symbolism. Worship is the summit of our service to God. Do you remember how we talked about Moses ascending to the top of Mount Sinai and how in the same way... Jesus also ascended to the peak of the heavenly Mount Zion to be crowned. You probably remember the idea, if not the exact words. The heavenly Mount Zion is the true center and the highest point of the world. This is an important reality to think about. Our worship does not happen in a vacuum. We're not just sucked up into space, as it were. We are drawn up the heavenly mountain into the center of the world, but we do not stay there. We descend again because there is more to creation than just the peak. The mountain sits on something. Creation is held together at the center. It is governed from the highest point, which of course is God's throne, but there is a vast world that extends out from that point And much of it still needs to be properly attached, as it were. It needs to be integrated into the heavenly reality, brought under God's governance. It needs to be summed up in Christ, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1. This idea of the world as a mountain, with worship flowing down into the world, is actually modeled for us from the very first chapters of Scripture. Think about Eden. Eden. God forms and divides and fills this great world, this wild world, and then he plants a garden, a sanctuary in the middle of it, a temple on a mountain. Ezekiel 28, 13 to 14 describes Eden as the holy mountain of God. This is temple language. God places Adam into his temple to guard and tend it, the same language used of the work of the priests in Israel's temple, But he also instructs him, don't just look after the garden, Adam. Go out and exercise dominion over the whole world. So Adam is to start in the garden, to cultivate and glorify the garden while keeping it safe, and presumably to build a place to live in the garden, so a house for himself. But he isn't to stop there. He is to fashion the whole world after the pattern of Eden. Adam must subdue and form and fill the world until it is entirely integrated into the pattern of heaven established in the garden temple. This is the origin of the city of God. Now, do you remember what flows out from the garden? Genesis 2.10, a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became four heads. These heads, these rivers, water all the lands around Eden. Four rivers going out to the four corners of the earth. So what? Well, how does Psalm 46 describe the dwelling of God? There is a river, the streams of which make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her at the turning of the morning. The nations raged. The kingdoms moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The psalm goes on to describe all the things that God has done in the earth. It depicts God's temple as this stable point, the center of the world, the top of creation, the place from which he reigns, and even though things seem to fall apart outside, this will not last. The center will always hold, and from the center, God acts to bring order to even the furthest reaches. God will integrate All things into himself eventually. Remember, we talked about love as covenantal integration. He is summing up all things in Christ. What what does this have, however? Have we gotten off topic? What does this have to do with the waters flowing out of the garden? I know that this is this is a bit of a this is a river, isn't it? (laughs) Think of the river that flows out of the temple in Ezekiel 47. What does it do? Then he said to me. These waters issue forth toward the eastern region and shall go down into the Arabah. They shall go toward the sea. Into the sea shall the waters go, which were made to issue forth, and the waters shall be healed. And it shall come to pass that every living creature which swarmeth in every place whither the uh, the, the rivers come shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish. For these waters are come thither, and the waters of the sea shall be healed, and everything shall live whithersoever the river cometh. Now, obviously, I say obviously, this is not referring to actual fish. We are fishers of men. Have you ever noticed that fish and fishing in the sea go basically unmentioned in the Old Testament, which is all about Israel, but are very centrally focused in the New Testament, which is all about the gospel going forth to the nations? The seas are the Gentile nations, the fish are the Gentiles. I hope that. We are at the point where I can say something like this and you see the truth of it clearly, um, that you're familiar enough with how the Bible interprets itself, that I don't need to prove my case right now. But here is a simple comparison to illustrate the point and move us forward. Revelation 22, verse 1 and 2. He showed me a river of water of life, bright as crystal, proceeding out from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This is the same river. It's the river of Eden. It's the river of Ezekiel's temple. This is the same river in the midst of the street thereof, and on this side of the river and on that was the tree of life, bearing twelve manner of fruits, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So the waters from the temple in Ezekiel heal the seas, and the fruit fed by these waters in Revelation heal the nations. So, what am I saying? It'll all come together in a second. I want you to think of the world as Scripture depicts it with a mountain at the middle. On Sunday, we come to the center and top of the world to a heavenly summit in order to participate in and be shaped by the spiritual pattern from which all reality extends. We come up into heaven to learn what it means when Jesus says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remember, we have learned that true liturgy, good liturgy, right liturgy, is ordering the form and timing of our worship to resonate with heavenly realities. Liturgy is ordering the form and timing of our worship to resonate with heavenly realities. The Lord's Day is where we learn to do this. It is liturgy concentrate. It is the place where God wears the heavenly grooves into our souls, the heavenly patterns, into our behavior, the heavenly sequences into our routines, the heavenly categories into our thinking, the heavenly contours into our intuitions. He orders and structures our thoughts and actions so that they make spiritual sense and reflect spiritual realities. In other words, he fashions us into proper divine symbols who are capable of expressing in the physical world the mystical realities that lie behind it. That is what he does on Sunday mornings for us. Liturgy, concentrate. But then, that worship, that heavenly pattern, flows back down the mountain. Throughout the rest of the week, his liturgy, his ordering of the form and timing of what we do, is mixed into our everyday work, our everyday service of God. Liturgy does not begin and end at the door of the church. All of life is liturgical. All of life is worship. All of life is service to God, which means that all of life must be ordered to reflect the heavenly reality so that God's will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. If all of life is to participate in, to be integrated into, to be summed up in Christ... Then all of life must be liturgical. I don't mean that all of life must look like Sunday worship. And I'm not saying that everything we do has to be written down and, and scripted and with call and response or hymns at particular points. I'm not I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about rituals. I mean that the form and the timing of everything that we do must be continually transformed from one degree of glory to another to more accurately reflect the heavenly reality. And the Lord's Day liturgy is where this starts, by teaching us, by shaping us to instinctively follow the right patterns in everything that we do and to see service to God as foundational to our lives. The Lord's Day liturgy, if it really does reflect heaven reality, heavenly realities, teaches us how to say and do the right things in the right order and the right way, not just here, but throughout Our lives. Christ transforms us on Sunday in order to transform the rest of the world through us during the week. Now, that's all very, that sounds great. It's very abstract, isn't it? Let me give you the most fundamental example that I know of. There are many patterns in Scripture. I do not claim to know them all. This one is important because I want you to have something very concrete something very practical to hang this idea on and take away as an application, because these, as I say, are very abstract ideas. We will return to this when we look at the Lord's Supper, but I'm going to give you the pattern now by way of closing so I can get it into your minds, and it won't be unfamiliar to you when we look at it again. You can percolate on it. We've seen that the height of Lord's Day worship, not just its sole purpose, not its only purpose, but its highest point, the pinnacle, is communion with God, right? The Lord's Supper, that's what we're working toward doing very soon. So let's assume, like people who live by faith and not by sight, because this might seem like a very wild and unfounded assumption to Enlightenment Christians, but let's assume that the sequence of the Lord's Supper is actually of liturgical significance in the way that I've just suggested, that it actually patterns something for us about not just coming before God, but about all of life. It establishes an important heavenly pattern that should be reflected in our whole lives, including in our work. Well, what is the pattern? Well, Matthew twenty-six twenty-six says, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Let's assume that there is significance to this sequence. Because there is. What is the sequence exactly? Number one, Jesus takes the bread. He he grasps it. He lays hold of it. Number two, he blesses the bread. He, He gives thanks for it. Number three, he breaks the bread. He divides it. James Jordan would say he restructures it. Fourth, he gives it. He distributes it. He assigns, he shares, he apportions it out. Fifth, he tells us its meaning. He assesses it or judges it. And finally, six, the disciples eat it. They consume. They integrate it into themselves. And they enjoy and rest in it. Now, as I say, I am closing up. I, I don't want to run too long. I'm not going to unfold this whole pattern for you now. But it is a fractal pattern. Fractals. And it is a pattern that we follow not just in the Lord's service. It is a pattern that we follow in our weekday worship as well, our weekday service to God. Think about how you start your day. Well, I won't speak for you. Think about how you might start your day if you had learned to work according to this liturgical pattern. Number one, you might take hold of the day in your mind. You grasp with your mind the opportunities and challenges that you must navigate. Number two, you thank God for the day that he has given you. Confessing your dependence on him and your gratitude for his provision. Number three, you might begin to break the day up in your mind, dividing it into the various tasks that must be performed. Number four, you start to think about how you will assign or apportion these tasks, possibly to other people, how you will distribute them, how you will share the load if you have employers or a wife and children who help you with your work. Number five, you might assess or judge between the tasks to decide which is the most pressing. And then number six, of course, you will begin to do the tasks, to consume them, as it were. Now, as you do that, as you consume these tasks, you are going to repeat the pattern again. You are going to take hold of the first task. And if you've really gotten into the habit that Paul instructs us in, of praying without ceasing, you will give thanks for it. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus towards you. First Thessalonians 5 16 to 18. Then you'll begin whatever work is needed of breaking down or dividing or restructuring or shaping or transforming whatever the task requires, usually requires some kind of, this is just work, isn't it? It's like the essence of work. And you may delegate bits of it, apportioning them out, sharing the task. And when the task is done, also, you may have something that you want to share with others, you know, if you're baking a cake. And once the task is done, you will assess the work, you will judge it, hopefully you will declare that it is good, and then you will rest, and the task will become integrated into your life. Now, is it surprising that this liturgical pattern, this way of ordering the form and timing of our actions, is it surprising that it sits at the very heart of our Lord's Day worship? And is it surprising that this pattern, it fits so easily over everything that we do. From the smallest tasks to the largest projects, from the way that we begin our day to the way that we actually do the tasks themselves. It should not be surprising. But I suspect it is a little surprising because we don't really think of all of life being worship. And we don't really think that Scripture truly does establish the the waveforms that all reality rides on and is carried up into. This just isn't the way that modern Christians think. We come to worship God on the Lord's Day, the rest of the week we work, and there's no real connection between the two, and how we do the one and how we do the other is really just a pragmatic question. If they look similar, it's just because you know God made both of them, but there's not that much to learn here, surely. Well, I hope that I have at least started to show you that this is not a very good way of thinking. There's something wrong with that. There is a much better, a much more holistic view of worship and life and scripture itself where everything that we do is caught up into heavenly patterns which are articulated for us by God graciously in his word and summed up for us in Christ into whom we ourselves are being integrated and into whom the whole world is being integrated until it looks like heaven itself and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven.